Sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 120 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Of all the musicians in the Franklin Mint Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time multi-box collection, only one has his own box all to himself. Composer, pianist, influencer, band leader, and legend, Ellington composed thousands of scores over his 50-year career. So, get ready to hear an originator of big band music in Volume 120, Duke, a Jazz Classic, Part 2. Now, as usual with a Franklin Mint box set, I will read the liner notes from the booklet that comes in each box as a tune's introduction. Even among these 1940-1942 performances, Coco stands out. It is one of the great classics of recorded jazz, and the title one would unhesitatingly choose if allowed to keep only one Ellington recording. Allegedly, it is an excerpt from Bula, a projected opera on an African subject. The mood is one of savagery, and this effect is heightened because it is so finely controlled. It is also a lesson on how to play the blues with a large ensemble, though no other big band of that time would have been well advised to follow the same path or to emulate Ellington's careful shuffling of 8- and 12-bar patterns, which affects the final climax with superb dissonant brass. This music would be hard to overpraise, and only Gil Evans has worthily followed its example. Thank you. 
Ellington and his famous orchestra from the early 1940s with Coco, written by Duke Ellington and recorded March 6th, 1940. Okay, why this record for this episode? Well, because I have always liked Duke Ellington and his music, and I've been happily exploring many of his recordings that I've never heard, but thanks to the depth of this box set, I now can. Plus, it's only the second record from the set we've gotten to, so I thought I'd get another one scheduled. And that sums it up pretty quickly. So, on to the next song. There is a terse playing by Ellington on Jumpin's Punkins, a feature for drummer Sonny Greer, Brief Begard, and Harry Carney at engaging length. Note the extreme liveliness of the closing ensemble, the sober tempo notwithstanding. Thank you. 
Jumpin' Pumpkins, written by Mercer Ellington, Duke's son. And it was recorded February 15th, 1941. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Duke Ellington, Great Jazz Classics. It's on the Franklin Mint Record Society label, number J-A-Z-Z-6. It's part of the Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time series. It's a four red vinyl LP red compilation box set, and it was released in 1983, and its genre is jazz. And we will hear six of the 12 songs from Record 22, Box Set 6 of this collection. Now, I decided on just one paragraph from the extensive liner notes within the enclosed booklet, and it is titled Big Band Recordings. Although Ellington first ventured into a recording studio during 1924, his earliest recording in this issue dates from 1927 and apt timing, as this was the year that the band moved to the Cotton Club on Lenox Avenue in New York City and hence stepped into the big time. How did this music seem to the club's patrons or to others who, first in America and soon afterwards in Europe, bought specimens of it on fragile 10-inch 78 RPM shellac discs? Even if they knew that this was specifically jazz, they would not have been looking for a composer and still less for one who worked on the special lines that Ellington had just begun to follow. To judge by what little was published at the time, the few people who concerned themselves with such matters appeared to regard jazz as a revolt against the very idea of composition. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. Now, this is for the entire box. $43.47 for the highest, $14.60 for the lowest, for a $24.74 average and $21.82 median. It was last sold on Discogs January 3rd, 2023 for £24, or $26.09. I couldn't find a copy on eBay, but I found one on Amazon for $99. Now, my dad's record is in really good condition, especially because all of these albums are still in the individual plastic sleeves that have kept them very well protected. The booklet that comes in each box set is in fair condition. I've been handling them too much while writing the scripts for this show, and the box itself is also in extremely good condition. I'll value my dad's vinyl box set near the average of $25. Okay, let's move on. Rain Check, like other Billy Strayhorn compositions, was not welcomed by jazz critics at the time it was introduced, but this lithely moving piece is an apt vehicle for Juan Teisel and Webster. The composer is twice heard at the piano, and we get a glimpse of Ray Nance, the new man who had replaced Williams. The end comes abruptly with brass and reeds in full cry. Thank <laughs> you. 
Shack, written by Billy Strayhorn and recorded December 2nd, 1941. Time now for a little more insight into the life and legacy of this great composer and band leader. Edward Kennedy Ellington was born on April 29, 1899 to James Edward Ellington and Daisy Kennedy Ellington. They lived with his maternal grandparents in the West End neighborhood of Washington, D.C., where he started piano lessons at the age of seven. Daisy surrounded her son with dignified women to reinforce his manners and teach him to live elegantly. Ellington's childhood friends noticed that his casual, offhand manner, his easy grace, and his dapper dress gave him the bearing of a young nobleman, and began calling him Duke. Ellington credited his chum, Edgar McIntree, for the nickname. Quote, I think he felt that in order for me to be eligible for his constant companionship, I should have a title, so he called me Duke, unquote. Ellington first played in New York City in 1923. Later that year, he moved there and, in Broadway nightclubs, led a sextet that grew in time into a 10-piece ensemble and later to 14, which is why he is considered one of the originators of big band jazz. During the formative Cotton Club years, Duke Ellington experimented with and developed the style that would quickly bring him worldwide success and recognition. Ellington would be among the first to focus on musical form and composition in jazz using ternary forms and call-and-response techniques. Radio broadcasts from the Cotton Club made Ellington famous across America and also gave him the financial security to assemble a top-notch band that he could write music specifically for. With these exceptional musicians who remained with him throughout the 1930s, Ellington made hundreds of recordings, appeared in films and on radio, and toured Europe in 1933 and 1939. The expertise of this ensemble allowed Ellington to break away from the conventions of band section scoring. Instead, he used new harmonies to blend his musicians' individual sounds and emphasized congruent sections and a supple ensemble. Duke Ellington led his band for more than half a century, composed thousands of scores, and created one of the most distinctive ensemble sounds in all of Western music. Ellington called his music American music rather than jazz. Although he was a gifted piano player, Duke Ellington's orchestra was his principal instrument. In his 50-year career, he played over 20,000 performances in Europe, Latin America, the Middle East, as well as Asia. Duke Ellington composed more than 3,000 songs. Among Ellington's many honors and awards were honorary doctorates from Howard and Yale universities. Ellington was awarded the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1966. He was later awarded several other prizes, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1969 and the Legion of Honor by France in 1973, the highest civilian honors in each country. On May 24, 1974, at the age of 75, Ellington died of lung cancer and pneumonia. More than 12,000 people attended his funeral. He was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York City. In fact, I plan on visiting his grave in June. We will now hear recordings from after 1950, the rest of the way out. Ellington is on record as saying that he regarded his sacred concerts as his most important compositions, and they are, they are represented here by Heaven, an excerpt from the second concert. This was also heard at his funeral, the only recorded music used on that impressive occasion. 
The singer, Alice Babs, was his favorite vocalist after Ivy Anderson left him, but the Ellingtonian stamp on this piece comes from Hodges' contribution. Many of Ellington's greatest admirers have numerous reservations about this aspect of his activities, yet even the text, naive rather than merely banal, may some may say something about the nature of his religious impulse. Whatever doubts may be felt about the reality of heaven, there are so many lines of development in Ellington's work that we are in no position to complain if one of them seems less fruitful than the others.
Wasn't That Pretty? Heaven, written by Duke Ellington, and recorded January 19, 1968, and released in 1971. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the part Duke played in the Harlem Renaissance. With the end of the Civil War in 1865, hundreds of thousands of African Americans, newly freed from the yoke of slavery in the South, began to dream of fuller participation in American society, including political empowerment, equal economic opportunity, and economic and cultural self-determination. With booming economies across the North and Midwest offering industrial jobs for workers of every race, many African Americans realized their hopes for a better standard of living and a more racially tolerant environment lay outside the South. By the turn of the 20th century, the Great Migration was underway as hundreds of thousands of African Americans relocated to cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, Detroit, Philadelphia, and New York. The Harlem section of Manhattan, which covers just three square miles, drew nearly 175,000 African Americans, giving the neighborhood the largest concentration of black people in the world. Harlem became a destination for African Americans of all backgrounds, from unskilled laborers to an educated middle class. They shared common experiences of slavery, emancipation, and racial oppression, as well as a determination to forge a new identity as free people. The Harlem Renaissance encompassed poetry and prose, paintings and sculpture, jazz and swing, opera and dance. What united these diverse art forms was their realistic presentation of what it meant to be black in America, what writer Langston Hughes called an expression of our individual dark-skinned selves, as well as a new militancy in asserting their civil and political rights. And Duke Ellington was highly influential based on his ability to spread the music and the message of that renaissance to the rest of America through his radio broadcasts from the Cotton Club. Harlem Renaissance's impact on America was indelible. The movement brought notice to the great works of African-American art and inspired and influenced future generations of African-American artists and intellectuals. The self-portrait of African-American life, identity, and culture that emerged from Harlem was transmitted to the world at large, challenging the racist and disparaging stereotypes of the Jim Crow South. In doing so, it radically redefined how people of other races viewed African Americans and understood their experience. Most importantly, the Harlem Renaissance instilled in African Americans across the country a new spirit of self-determination and pride, a new social consciousness, and a new commitment to political activism, all of which would provide a foundation for the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 1960s. <laughs> Music especially jazz, has seemed to be on the forefront of every major social justice movement since even before this time that we are talking about. Okay, the Big Apple to the Big Easy. From New Orleans Suite comes Aristocracy a la Jean Lafitte. In Walt's time, this at first sounds like John Lewis and Percy Heath in one of the modern jazz quartet's Commedia dell'arte pieces, uh, though this is no longer true after Harry Carney enters. Later, Fred Stone's voluble flugelhorn phrases take over, while Carney, for a time, adds a second voice. Thank you. 
Aristocracy a la Jean Lafitte, part of New Orleans Suite by Duke Ellington. And that was recorded April 27th, 1970. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I always appreciate pulling out any of the box sets from this Franklin Mint collection. The depth of recordings represented here is astounding, especially when I keep coming across examples of some of these versions never being released before. And the depth of Ellington music is truly entertaining and amazing. I'm glad my dad insisted he take over the collection when I could no longer afford the subscription necessary 
to build this collection. Those were different times, and I <clears throat> did work in radio. This last tune was actually the first tune on the second side of the record. Then we jump ahead eight years to Rockin' and Rhythm, a spectacular example of Ellington's ability to renew himself, in this case on a piece he first recorded almost a quarter of a century before. Carney's clarinet and Quentin Jackson's trombone surface here, but here the ensemble is king. It does not have the wide range of colors, the, sub, the subtle mixtures of the early 1940s, but the playing has great fire and a relaxed aggressiveness. Cat Anderson's trumpet triumphantly tops the mighty final sequence, and the essential truth of the original 1930-31 versions is presented in a new guise.
Rockin' in Rhythm, written by Duke Ellington, Harry Carney, and Irving Mills. It was recorded February 2nd, 1954. Now, it was first recorded by Ellington in January 1931 at the Cotton Club. And there you have selections from the second record in this Franklin Mint box set that only belongs to Ellington. So thanks for tuning into Volume 120, Duke, a Jazz Classic Part 2, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 121, Jazz Sounds. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>